We have gathered this morning to glean from God's word, which is the source of all wisdom. For it's God's word that gives us wisdom that leads to life and godliness. So as we turn to God's word, may we give our full attention and our, our heart's affection and devotion to the truth that God has laid forth and given to us. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, and um, we will continue our study that we began last week in verses 1 through 10 of Galatians chapter 2. Last week we looked at the first three verses and Paul's testimony of the gospel. We saw that Paul had proclaimed a salvation that was indeed by faith alone and in Christ alone. And so we're looking at these verses under the overall heading of faithful battles for the true gospel, for that is what we are striving after, to be faithful as we battle for and, and hold the line on the truth, as we stand for the truth in a day of error, in a day of evil. So today we will pick up the second part of this text and we will consider how we must identify false teachers, how we must stand against them, what are some of their defining marks, and how we should respond to those who twist and pervert the scripture. So let's read our passage, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and then we need to ask the Lord to help us as we seek to study his word. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Then after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles." And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now before your throne of grace. 
And we do thank you that we have a great high priest who ever lives and intercedes on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, he sits enthroned at the right hand and pleads our innocence. He pleads our righteousness, not because of anything that we have done, but because he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we could die to sin, live in righteousness, and be clothed in his righteousness, have his righteousness credited to our account. So we thank you, our great God, for for such a redeemer. We praise you for such a plan of salvation, whereby you call sinners unto yourself by producing faith in us, by granting us repentance, by putting a new heart in us and causing us to have new desires to live holy and holy unto you. Now, Lord, as we come to study your word, we understand that just as salvation is a miracle that you work in us, so too is sanctification a miracle that you work in us. So too is the application of the scripture a miracle by which you, through your Holy Spirit and your written revealed word, draw us unto yourself, conform our lives unto that of Christ. So that is our prayer today, Lord, that the Spirit would come and move in power among us. Lord, may the words spoken today be clear. Lord, would they be edifying, sanctifying to the believers, and glorifying to you. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us humbled hearts to receive and apply the truth. Lord, our desire is that you be glorified among us today. Our desire is that we would know you more and know more how to live in this crooked and perverse generation. Lord, by your spirit, please accomplish these things. Please do these things for the sake of your glory. I ask and pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, part two of of the idea of faithful battles for the true gospel. I struggle sometimes when it comes time to do a review. When you you have three parts in one section of Scripture, I always struggle with, with how to tie it in without rehashing everything we looked at last week. We don't have time for that. We don't have the mental capacity to hear everything from last week again and then to hear a whole new idea again today. So I want to just think about what we ended with last time. We ended with the pointed implication from verses 1 through 3 that the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be our cornerstone as we strive to faithfully battle for the truth. For if we get the gospel wrong, if we get the gospel even slightly wrong, not just a gross error, but even a slight error as to the gospel and how it applies to our lives, All these other issues are pointless. All these other issues don't matter because we are offline. We have missed our foundation. So while we must and we do acknowledge our duty as believers to fight for the whole counsel of the truth, to live our lives under the whole authority of Scripture, 
We must also acknowledge and understand that Scripture must be rightly viewed through the lens of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All Scripture must come into submission to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was raised on the third day, that he has ascended back to heaven, showing that his sacrifice was accepted. And then the application of that, as Paul said in Acts 16.31, that we must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. We have to get that point right. If we miss that point, the rest of this passage is completely and utterly meaningless. While we must be vigilant and we must be devoted in our efforts to build biblical church partnerships, as we'll look at Lord willing next week, while we must be vigilant in our resistance to false teachers, dear friends, we must get the gospel right. The glory of God through the gospel is the central purpose and the central message of all of Scripture. If you're offline from the gospel, if you miss the mark of the gospel, you miss the mark of the application of everything else. Now, with that said, I also want to give the clear caution that we gave last time that while keeping the gospel as our primary focus, as our zeroing point, we must not allow ourselves to to not fight or to ignore the necessary battles for all of the truth. Because if we start tearing away at the truth of the Bible, then eventually we will tear away at the truth of the gospel. It all comes together. We talked about a systematic theology. All of Scripture comes together to form a system. We cannot simply say that our focus, as some Southern Baptists might say, is the gospel above all. Yes, our our goal, our focus is the gospel above all, but we cannot say that while the supporting truths of Scripture are eroded away around this gospel that we cherish and this gospel that we proclaim. Now, certainly there are those who look to pick a fight over any and every battle. There are those who who seek to turn every issue into an argument or a debate or a point of contention. And dear friends, that cannot, that must not define us as followers of Christ. We are not to be a contentious people, but we are called to contend earnestly for the faith, to contend earnestly for the truth. We must remember Paul's words to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through verse 30. He said, be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the first point of why this is so important, because we are the church of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are purchased by his blood. That makes this battle for the truth eternally significant. Paul continued on. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. They'll speak perverse, twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So we hold up the gospel above all. The gospel is our our cornerstone, our zeroing point. But friends, we must also contend for the truth 
because most assuredly on the authority of Holy Scripture, we know that there are many who will contend against the truth. So we have to hold those in balance. They have to work together. This balance, I'm sure, is difficult and challenging for us to keep. And that is why we must walk with the Lord. That is why we must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that is why we must know His Word. Not just some truths about His Word, but we must know it all. We must strive to grow daily in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the the background, the introduction to what we want to look at today in Galatians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. So this is part two, point number two in this overall, this overall lesson. And we want to look today at the defining marks of false teachers. The defining marks of false teachers. Again, verses 4 and 5 to put them freshly in our minds. Paul said, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield into subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now we know that Scripture defines our Christian life as a spiritual war. And if there is a war, friends, there necessarily must be an opposition. There necessarily must be an enemy. Paul essentially says that these things from verses 1 through 3, he went and he proclaimed the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles before the Jerusalem council because there was an enemy, because there were false teachers who were coming into the churches of Galatia proclaiming a twisted and perverted gospel. Now, some may tell you that you are being harsh or that you are being unloving or even that you are not properly adorning the gospel if you are to distinguish and to call out false teachers. That is common in in evangelical life. If you are to stand up and name names of false teachers or of heretics, you're often told that you're unloving and even that you're not properly living out the gospel. However, friends, the opposite is really quite true. If we are in a war for the truth, the enemy and the opposition must be clearly identified. We must not run without aim. We must not box as though we are beating and punching against the air. For if we are to fight a battle against an undefined enemy, dear friends, that is surely a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for failure. We must have in ourselves the dual purpose that Paul laid forth to Titus in in defining the work and the qualifications of an elder in Titus 1.9. He said, you must exhort in sound doctrine. Yes, you do exhort in sound doctrine, but you also must refute those who contradict. Dear friends, that is the battle before us today. That is what we must do. That battle is upon us. And thankfully, as we consider that that battle is upon us, in the Lord's wisdom, in the Lord's goodness and grace to us, Paul has so clearly defined in verses 4 and 5 
what we must look for as we strive to define this enemy, as we strive to define false teachers and to know how we can resist them, to know how we must resist them. So in a way, what we're going to do this morning is just kind of do a series of word studies. We're going to look through all the different terms that Paul gives us here that define and mark out who these false teachers are. Firstly, we see that Paul calls them false brethren, false brethren. They, it is the Greek term there, pseudodelphos, pseudodelphos, from the word pseudo, meaning false, the word adelphos, meaning brother. It is a literal translation. He is talking about false and fake and deceitful and deceiving people who call themselves brothers in Christ. So what does that mean for us? Well, obviously, firstly, it means that there are those who are going to try to say that they are with us. They're going to say, yes, I am a brother or a sister in Christ. They call themselves brothers and sisters as though we are all fellow Christians fighting a battle together. And this false Christianity, again, on the authority of Scripture, this false Christianity is a satanic work. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes there, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And therein, Paul concludes, their end will be according to to their deeds. So we see that there's this idea that there are false and fake brethren who disguise themselves, as Satan did, as workers of righteousness or an angel of light. So if we want to faithfully stand for God's truth, we must be armed with some level of discernment, some ability to look out and, and understand how and why we can mark someone out as a false brother. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. In the Lord's providence, we've already read these verses once today. Matthew chapter 7, I want to look at verses 15 through 20 to consider how do we spot a false brother or a false prophet, as Jesus calls them here. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So what is the most biblical way to spot a false brother, a false, a false Christian, one who claims the name of Christ but does not have Christ within them? Very simply, it's to look at the fruit of their life. Look at the fruit of their life. Not what they tell you, is the fruit of their life, but what is the actual fruit of their life? 
I can tell you that I'm a millionaire, that I make $1 million an hour, but you can go look at my bank account and know that that's not true. So too can someone come to you and tell you, I am a follower of Christ, and then when you examine their life, the fruit of their way of life, you can clearly say, no, that is not a follower of Christ. They do not have Christ in them. They do not have the Holy Spirit of God in them. It's not what they tell you, but it's the observable holiness with which someone lives. A holiness that is both observable and growing. I think one mark of of someone who is not in Christ is that they may hold a form of godliness, but that godliness does not grow because those of us who are in Christ are moving towards Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of life where someone struggles and deals and battles with sin. But overall, if you look at the big big picture of someone's life, they should be moving in a Christward direction. They should be being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, just to be very clear, there will be many who will tell you that they live a holy life. Just like Jesus said, there will be many who cry, Lord, Lord, on that last day. Did we not prophesy and cast out demons in your name? He tells them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. There will be many who say, yes, look at my life. I am holy. I do this, that, and the other. But that's where, friends, we need some discernment. We need to ensure that we're able to examine what is actually being lived. Now, we have to be careful. That doesn't give us the permission to go on witch hunts in people's lives. We don't need to allow ourselves to have critical or suspicious spirits towards one another. What we must do is walk in close fellowship so that we are able to observably witness the holiness or lack thereof of a so-called brother or sister's life. That doesn't mean that everything they do, you go examine and scrutinize to the smallest and most minute detail. But if they live in such a way that does not show progressive sanctification in Christ, or even worse, shows no sanctification in Christ, then we are told that we know them by their fruits. So the first defining mark of false teachers is that they are indeed false brethren. Paul continues on. He says that there are these false brethren who were secretly brought in. Now, who brought them in? We don't know. Paul doesn't say. Were they brought in purposefully, or did they sneak their way in completely undetected? Again, Paul doesn't really say. So it could have been that these men were brought in unsuspectingly. They came in, and they, and they lived kind of a, a lifestyle that would make you think, yeah, those people are in Christ, but then over time they clearly revealed who they were. They concealed who they really were, and they snuck in for the purpose of destroying the church. Think about this in light of that passage we read a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians 11. It is very apparent that the agent behind this secret intrusion of false teachers into the church is Satan himself. What is Satan's goal and mission? Satan's goal is to turn people from Christ to turn people away from God. How does he do this? Think about the account of Genesis chapter 3. He does this with great cunning, with great deception. 
He does this by undermining the truth. He does this with craftiness. Satan does not wage an open, out-front war, but rather he comes in and says, did God really say that you could not eat from, from that tree? Now, surely he didn't. He just knows that when you eat of it, that you'll become like him. So he, he kind of courted it off over here. That is how Satan works, with deception. He secretly, stealthily brings in false teachers into the church. That is his purpose. That is his method. That is his goal in bringing in false teachers to turn people in the church away from Christ, away from the truth. Away from, he, he does so to subvert the power of the counsel of Scripture. He does so to subvert the authority of the Scripture. So this description then continues on. Paul says that there are false brethren who were secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty. So the next mark is that they sneak in among the church. That is, they move with great stealth. They move under the cover, as it might be, of darkness among those to whom they minister. Again, these are false teachers. These are ones who, who come in and in some way try to minister to and among the church. The, the short book of Jude talks about these types of people. Jude verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's interesting. Jude here describes those who come in and pervert the grace of God, turning it into licentiousness, turning it into allowing you to live a lawless life, a, a life of sin by cloaking that sin in the liberty that you have in Christ. That is the opposite end of the spectrum from what the Judaizers in Galatia were doing. They were coming in spreading the heresies of legalism that you you needed to have faith in Jesus, but you also needed to join in works. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to come under the Old Testament law. So what do we gather then, comparing the false teachers of Galatia and these that Jude is referencing that are kind of on two different ends of the spectrum? We, we understand from that that false teachers take on various forms. They are identified not always necessarily by being to this side or to that side, but by the fact that they twist and pervert and change and undermine the Word of God. It's one thing to be balanced in the matters of legalism and licentiousness. It's one thing to be balanced in any two matters of Scripture that, that may on the surface take two different sides uh, of the coin, but it's something else to always be playing both sides of the fence. It's a common thing, I think, in our day, where under, under the cloak of balance, people will just play both sides of the fence. They say one thing to this group, they say another thing to this group. Our task is to distinguish between the two, and frankly, I think it's really clear, typically, when you're, when you're dealing directly with someone, it usually becomes clear whether they are balanced or whether they're playing this side of the fence with this group of people and this side of the fence with this other group of people. 
It becomes clear, especially over time. These false teachers, they come in, and we see it from Paul here in Galatians. We see it from Jude. We also see it in 2 Peter, that they come in with stealth and sneakiness. False teacher does not walk into the church and declare, hey, I'm a false teacher. I'm going to lead you astray from Christ. That does not happen. A heretic does that in a way, but a false teacher does not. Consider um, kind of the, the common definitions of the term false teacher and heretic today. A false teacher, Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 2, as one who secretly introduces false heresies within the church. A heretic is one who, op- who openly brings in those false teachings, who openly says, this is who I am, this is what I teach, this is what I believe. That is a heretic. A false teacher is one who comes and tries to, by stealth, bring in these things that do not accord with Scripture. A heretic may call himself a brother, but a close examination of what he teaches and how he lives will clearly identify he or she as one who is outside of Christ. A false teacher, on the other hand, is one who who names the name of Christ and generally gives the appearance of being in Christ. If you examine them from a distance, they will look like they are in Christ, that they are holding to the truth. But they mix and they mingle the truth with error. They mix and mingle error into the truth to hide their error until they're able to openly bring out their error once they have brought people into their captivity or into their bondage, as Paul speaks of momentarily. So he continues on, Paul, in in verse 4 of Galatians 2. He says that these false teachers have but one goal and one motive, and that is that they come in to spy out our liberty in Christ. They come in to spy out our liberty To spy out our liberty speaks of a close inspection of something in view of of plotting against it. It's one who comes in to closely examine something else so that they can develop a plan or a plot against that thing. Paul says that the false teacher wants to closely examine his gospel of grace so they can find a way to undercut it and undermine it and bring in their gospel of works. This proves, again, I think, that false teachers will always seek to strongly evidence that they are in Christ. Because to be able to sneak in, to spy out something, to closely inspect it, to get, to get that um, closeness into our lives as, as a church, they must evidence that they are with us. They'll give much lip service to us in order to spy out our relationship with Christ. MacArthur describes this sneaking spy work by saying that these enemies enter into the camp of believers by stealth with the objective of sabotage. That's how a spy works. They, They draw close to the very ones that they oppose and to the very ones that they are going to seek to destroy, to the very ones that they betray. If you ever go through anybody that works with the Department of Defense, you go through this insider threat training. Uh, talking about how these people will come in and try to get access to information that they can't have, and they'll go and sell it to a foreign government. It's, it's a common thing that people will, will try to do, and they don't do so by walking in and say, I represent the Chinese 
national communist government. Give me your information so I can go sell it. They come in, they work a job, they often do a good job in that so they can gain more access, more power, more trust, and then they get all the information they want and they go sell it to destroy our country. That is what these people do in the church. They sneak in, they get close to us, they spy out our lives, and then they turn around and betray us. They turn around and stab us in the back. That's what Judas Iscariot did to Jesus. He walked as one of the 12 disciples for those three years, and then he went and betrayed Jesus for a day's wage. He, he was close to Jesus. Now, Jesus knew all things, so Jesus was not fooled, but that was Judas's goal, to, to spy out who was the Messiah in the group and to turn that Messiah in for their own gain, for his own gain. So to, to briefly reset and summarize here, we see that false teachers come in among the brethren. They enter our churches and our circles of friendships, and they come in with craftiness, with deceit, with falsehood. They come in with the intention, Paul says, to spy out our liberty in Christ. And they are sneaky in this, and they seek to sabotage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the reason for all this? Why do they do this? The end of verse 4 tells us they do all this in order to bring us into bondage. That is a purpose clause. They do this for the singular purpose and goal to bring us into bondage, to bring us into captivity to their religious system, to their worldly ideologies. False brethren seek to enslave the church. They seek to enslave us to whatever worldly, unbiblical, and non-Christian ideology that they believe in and hold to. Just think about that. That's the language that Paul uses here. That's not some extreme language to get your attention. He says they seek to bring you into bondage. False teachers seek to enslave you to their way of thinking, to, to their worldly ideologies. The church, we don't seek to enslave anyone to anything. We seek to bring people under the authority of God's word. We th seek to bring people under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, to, to live in submission to his truth, his truth as revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. That's how you can uh, delineate false teachers from true believers. The false teachers try to bring you under something other than Scripture. Believers bring you only under the authority of God and his holy word. For the Judaizers, again, this enslavement meant submission to ceremonial law, submission to circumcision and the Mosaic law and the old ceremonies of the Old Testament. Today, the same attacks can happen. There are those who seek to bring you under a legalistic authority of Scripture. There are also those who who seek to bring you under the law of liberty. They seek to unbind your conscience to God's word. We want consciences that are bound by God's word, and there, there are those who seek to portray your liberty in Christ as something that gives you a license to sin. That is false teaching. Your liberty in Christ gives you no freedom to sin. Both of these ideas 
can be greatly concealed. People are, are good at confusing these things. And both of these ideas are equally dangerous and equally condemning. Later on in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, Paul says that legalism nullifies the grace of God. He says that it makes you depend on the law for righteousness rather than the cross of Christ. If we're to turn for the sake of time, we won't turn and read this, but in Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 verses 15 through 18, Paul talks about how lawlessness renders Christ's death as powerless because in coming under Christ, you should be freed from the power of sin. So if you go live a lawless life, you completely undermine and undercut the power of the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many other harmful ideologies and worldly thoughts and theologies and ways of thinking in our day. How do you spot them? How, how do we know those who are trying to bring us into bondage? Well, that would really be another sermon for another day, so just real briefly, I want to talk about Romans chapter 8. And you can read this um, later on, hopefully in, in a fuller context, but Romans 8 verses 1 through 8. Paul there begins by saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What is one of the surefire ways to spot a false theology, a worldly philosophy today? It's one that says, yes, there is still condemnation for one who is in Christ. Because God's word is clear. When you are in Christ, you are free of guilt. You are no longer condemned for your past sin. It is covered over and it is washed in the blood of Christ. In that same passage, Romans 8, um, verses 5 through 8, Paul talks about those who, who are fleshly and worldly-minded. That is another sure mark of these types of false teachers who want to bring you into bondage. Everything for them is fleshly-minded. It is focused on the here and the now and, and their life, their suffering, their mistreatment, the how you can live a better life now. Joel Osteen, I would say he's more of a heretic at this point than a, than a false teacher. But he tells you how you can live your best life now. He is fleshly minded. He is temporally minded. His focus is here. And that is a surefire mark of false teachers. False brethren, ultimately, they seek to bring you under the weight of, of their own scales. They seek to bring us into bondage under the, the scales that they come up with the things that they come up with that do not accord with the word of God. So how do you spot one who's not a false teacher? It's not false teaching to say that you need to love and be devoted to and to obey God. That is not legalism. To say that because you love God, you will obey his commands is biblical. So if somebody says that, they are not legalistic. They're holding to the truth and the authority of Scripture. Likewise, it is not overly lawless, it's not overly libertarian to say that you are free from the penalty and the ceremonies of the law when you are in Christ. Because Christ came and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled every point of the law because we cannot fulfill the law. That is what being free in Christ means. It means that we're free from the bondage and the penalties of the law that hold us down and condemn us. And then we are free to go out and obey 
do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but so that you might walk in the Spirit and glorify the Lord. Now, moving to verse 5, there is another mark of false teachers and false brethren that's, I think, kind of more implied here than it is completely directly seen. Paul says, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So what we see there, another mark of these false brethren, these false teachers, is that they're absolutely relentless in their attacks on the gospel. They're so relentless that Paul said, we didn't yield to them for even an hour. We did not give them an inch. We did not give them any chance to come in and portray their falsehood. This was not spite. This was not pride. This was not arrogance on the part of Paul. This was Paul's desire to protect the truth of the gospel. He knew the dangerous and unyielding nature of those false teachers. Again, consider the deception of Satan from Genesis 3. He just had one little foothold there with Adam and Eve, and that brought sin into a perfect world. So that's kind of an application. That's our response to such false brethren. So, you know, we kind of see how to spot them now. So let's think then about how how do we respond? How do we fight back against false teachers? And want to flip verse 5 around, consider the second part first and the first part second to, to get our goals and our motives right before we then get into the action. The second part of the verse, he says, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. As we battle false teachers and false brethren, as we contend earnestly for the faith, we must keep the purity and the power and the truth of the gospel as our primary focus. It must be our primary goal. It must even be our primary weapon. We battle in such a way that we are able to proclaim the gospel and use that as a weapon. We are to take up, as Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, friends, if you ever find yourself fighting battles for the Christian life for something other than the purity and the truth of the gospel, ultimately for the salvation of souls, which in turn glorifies God, if you find yourself fighting for reasons other than that, just be clear from Scripture, you've got it wrong. If your goal is not to hold the line on Scripture so that souls can be saved, so that God will be glorified in the salvation of souls, don't fight battles. We fight for the glory of God. Now, there is so much encompassed in that statement because the salvation of souls and the glory of God are not trivial or simple matters. It's where it goes back to we do have to hold the line on Scripture, on the authority and the power of Scripture, because that would undermine the gospel. So there's much in that statement. But nevertheless, if you can't trace your motivation back to those two issues, the the outworking of salvation for the, the outworking of the gospel for the salvation of souls and the glory of God, if that is not what you are seeking in fighting battles for the truth, dear friend, examine your heart. Examine your heart because the glory of God must be your ultimate focus. The glory of God must be my ultimate focus. The glory of God must be 
our ultimate focus corporately. When we fight a battle, it must be because we know that the outworking of not holding the line on this issue will end up resulting in the Lord not being glorified in a matter. Paul says that he fought for the truth of the gospel so that the gospel would remain and continue to be active in the Galatians. What is the, what is the goal of our fight for the truth? Is that we make the gospel and its practical outworkings as clear as possible for God's glory through the salvation of souls. So that is our purpose. Now, how do we fight that battle in this context? As, as Paul writes in Galatians 2, how do we fight that battle? Again, verse 4, he says, We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. The way to fight false teaching is that you do not yield to it. You do not give in to it. You do not give ear to it. We are subject to Christ. We are his people. He has redeemed us. He is our head. We are his messengers and his ambassadors. I love to think about Ephesians 5 in that context because Paul says that's really what Ephesians 5 is about, that in part about husbands and wives. It's not about how your wife, men, is to be subject to you and you are to be her head. Yes, that's an implication. But Paul says, I'm writing referring to Christ and the church. What does he say about Christ and the church? Ephesians 5, through 24, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the of the church. Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But the church is subject to Christ. So those are our two defining, our bounding ideas is that Christ is our head and we are subject to him. We're subject only to Christ and to his word. So when you try to hold the line on the truth, understand that you're doing that because you are subject to Christ. He is your head. He is your authority. He is your Lord. We live in an age and a culture where people will tell you that the greatest moral thing that you can do is be open-minded. The greatest thing you can do is, is just never take a hard stand on anything and let everybody have their own truth. Paul says that those who love and fight for the gospel are closed-minded and unyielding when it comes to the gospel truth. That is what it means to be biblical. It means to be closed-minded when it comes to the application and the truth of God's word. Calvin would write that this steadiness was the seal of Paul's doctrine. Paul's steadiness and his unyielding nature was the seal of his doctrine. It's why Paul was so trustworthy as a teacher, because he didn't yield, he didn't waver, he didn't waffle from side to side, he wasn't tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Rather, he was steady. He was steadfast. He was immovable, as he told the Corinthians to me, he was immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. So maybe now you ask the question. As I've thought through this, I've asked the question to myself many times. How do you distinguish between being gracious towards others while also standing firmly upon the truth? MacArthur is very helpful here. 
had a quote. He said, in doctrinal matters, especially relating to the heart of the gospel, Paul was completely inflexible. On matters regarding the gospel, Paul did not move. MacArthur continued, he would make considerable concessions in order to accommodate weak Christians. But he would not yield an inch of truth to accommodate false Christians. He made considerable concessions to to help, to be devoted to weak Christians. But he would not move an inch to accommodate false Christians. That's what we must do now. We've got to work there to, to distinguish between one who is weak and one who is false. But again, that's where we go back and we look at the fruit of their life. We have to know people. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly difficult to know if someone's in Christ from a distance. You can't read somebody's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever other social medias there are today and know whether or not they are in the Lord. But when you're in this building week in and week out, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, you're at breakfast on Saturday morning, you have them in your home, you are in their home, then you can know the course and the direction of somebody's life. Then you can distinguish through the Spirit, giving you discernment and understanding, while always keeping the idea of love and grace and patience, then you can distinguish whether or not you think you're dealing with a weak Christian or a false Christian. So to tile this back into the bigger picture of Galatians 2 and even this letter as a whole, we see that Paul has made it clear that evil and deceitful people will come in and they will attack the church and they'll attack the message of the gospel. And if we're to have a faithful gospel ministry, which is our calling collectively and each of our callings individually to be faithful ministers of the gospel, we must be ready and able and willing to identify such false teachers and to firmly stand against them, to reject their message, and ultimately to reject them if they're not willing to repent and come to Christ and come to the truth. Paul says in the next paragraph, he talks about the fact that he opposed Peter or Cephas to his face because Peter stood condemned, because his life and his practice of doctrine did not accord with the truth of the gospel. Paul says, I stood up in the presence of all there in Galatia and opposed him to his face because he stood guilty of sin against the Lord. I opposed him because he needed to repent. We must be so bold and so loving as Paul. We must speak the truth in love. We must never relent We must never give in. We must never become cowardice towards those who perpetuate lies and falsehood. We must hold the line. There's a great task before us as believers. Jesus told his disciples that they should be as shrewd as serpents, yet as innocent as the dove. And when you think about that, as as Christians, we're really one-trick ponies. The way for us to be as shrewd as serpents and yet as innocent as a dove is to walk with the Lord, to allow His Holy Spirit to work in you through the truth of His Word. We must strive to grow in maturity, to grow in discernment of truth versus error. How do you spot error? It's that you know the truth. 
You spot error by knowing what is true. And then as we do that, the Lord will provide the grace that we need for this great warfare that we fight. And that section is Matthew 10, um, verses 16 through 20, where Jesus says to be as shrewd as serpent and innocent as doves. He goes on to tell his disciples that they will go before kings and governors and the courts, and they will be told that they must testify of the Christ that they have been proclaiming. Jesus says that when they hand you over, don't worry about what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. It's the Spirit of God who speaks through you. How is the Spirit of God going to speak through you? It's when it's the Word coming back out. You can't speak the Word when you don't know the Word. Such a truth is so basic to our Christian walk. We must be anxious for nothing, but we must always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. You must always be ready to give an account for your hope of Christ. And these things come together. You are not anxious, and you're also able to give a defense of your hope in Christ when you walk with him, when you consistently walk with him, when you walk in regular times of private prayer, regular study of God's word, regular Christian fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters in the faith, when you regularly attend corporate worship. The, the gathering of the local church is God's greatest means of providing sanctification in our lives. We are to come together to stir one another up to good works. If you have no heart for God's people, how do you have a heart for God? Do not forsake the assembling, but come, gather, worship, fellowship. Seek to spend time with brothers and sisters that you might edify one another and be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. So in conclusion, and this will be the shortest conclusion I've ever given you, let's strive after these things. Let's seek to know Christ more. Let's seek to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we are able to stand firm and resist the evil of the days that we live in and the days that are surely coming. Let's stand firm. Let's close in prayer.